Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I believe that leadership creates a strategic advantage and is a key lever to create the world we want to inhabit. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. I am delighted today, such a timely guest, John Kilpatrick, the Managing Director of Greenfield Advisors. So John, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Very kind of you to ask. I'm a reformed finance professor and uh, went through the 12-step program and managed to get out of academia. For the last 20 plus years, I've been doing consulting work primarily in complex real estate problems, real estate valuation problems, damaged real estate. A lot of that's had to do with environmentally damaged real estate. We worked on some of the problems down in New Orleans following Hurricane Katrina. We worked on some problems in the Gulf Coast following the Deepwater Horizon explosion. We've worked on a number of neighborhoods that are impacted by environmental contaminants, airborne, soil, water, you name it. Someone asked my wife if she ever traveled with me, and she said, no, because John only goes to look at dumps. I hate to say that, but there's a certain amount of truth in it. We do a lot of other damaged real estate work. We've been very heavily involved over the last seven or eight years, picking up the pieces of failed mortgage-backed securities that were issued often to trusts and pension plans and the like that were just chock-a-block full of bad loans following the housing bubble and the crisis. So that's occupied a lot of my time lately. A little bit about me. Why circular economy? What is your connection to that? We have done a fair amount of brownfield consulting. In other words, we're usually called in when people are angry at one another, but we're also occasionally called in when somebody wants to fix the problem. There are several hundred thousand environmentally damaged parcels of real estate in the United States. That number changes from year to year. The EPA tries to keep track of it. Every few years, they update that number, and rather than getting smaller, it seems to get bigger. And we dump billions of dollars in that every year. But the reason I say that is that oftentimes these parcels of badly damaged real estate are in choice locations, locations where people would like to live, locations where businesses would like to start, locations where people would like to be employed, but for the environmental problems. And the environmental problems may range from something trivially simple to something that glows in the dark. And so I've had the opportunity to work on restoring these parcels of real estate, trying to find financial and economic solutions, because at the end of the day, the the balance sheet has to balance. Somebody who understands how to balance a checkbook has to come in and figure out how to make everything add up. And so we've really helped provide opportunities for these properties to re-enter the economy. And in such a way, this has been one slice of, not the entirety, but one slice of a circular economy. Thank you for clarifying, because for many of our listeners, circular is a thing that's just coming on the horizon. So traditional organizations have followed a linear economy that's often summarized by take, make, and waste. And you're talking about the part that has been, you're now recovering from waste. 
So John joins me today to discuss how leaders must begin to educate themselves on the circular economy, what it is, why it's critical for leaders to understand the topic, and what does it mean for their organizations. And interestingly, as you talk about real estate, there are some prime spots in Columbus, Ohio, where I live, that have been reclaimed, and they now have thousands of residential condos and apartments mainly, but thousands of them. It changes and helps us address the housing shortage that we're having. I was in Michigan not long ago looking at some old warehouses. The things that happened in warehouses can be polluting. So those are become brownfields and they have to be cleaned up. In a couple of communities that I went to, these neighborhoods of warehouses became neighborhoods of apartments and condominiums. And if you can visualize going in on the ground floor of these things and putting shops, stores, often offices, places where people can congregate, but also places where people can work. And then the upper floors, residences. You got the dirty thing there. You need to clean it up. And as long as you start thinking about cleaning it up, you got to think about let's adaptively reuse it. How do we take this thing that previously we would have just junked? And while the microcosm is an individual parcel of real estate, an individual property, in the macro, we're talking about whole communities and cities that we don't want to throw away because we have valuable infrastructure there and people need to live there. People need to live somewhere. I actually lived in one of those repurposed warehouses 25 years ago. And my former husband and I were probably the second people to buy into the building. So we saw what the rough warehouse looked like and what it looked like when they added a coffee shop to the basement and a design firm. And while I left that area, I continue to go back because the design firm we use is still in the first floor. So it's been fun to watch the evolution of turning something that was an abandoned warehouse into a community center. I had a city ask me to go look at an abandoned warehouse once that they said was on their city brownfields list. It was not on the EPA's list, but the city had a brownfields list. Seemed to be a perfectly reusable facility. Mm -hmm. All the bones of the building seemed to be in good shape. And I inquired with the city, I said, what was this building used for in the first place? And they said it was a liquor warehouse. Hmm. What is the alleged contaminant? They said broken bottles of booze. That's easy to clean up. Over the course of decades, bottles of whiskey had broken and quote unquote polluted the soil because what's sauce for the goose may not be sauce for the gander. <laughs> uh, and so, um, believe it or not, this place had to be remediated before they could do something with it. But something we might not think of as a pollutant. Let's step into the definition of what is the circular economy because we're getting hype and yet. I think most people like me until very recently had no idea what circular is and why I should care. If we were going to do a movie about a zombie apocalypse, not like anybody's ever done a movie like that, right? <laughs> I'm not the star of it, am I? <laughs> and people were going to go back to, to living in some primitive fashion. You know, we all had to go live in the North Woods or something like that. We would live much the way our ancestors might have lived just a couple of hundred years ago. When I was a boy in the 60s and 70s, there were books published on these sorts of things. Our, uh, anthropologists went up into Appalachia and interviewed people about how they lived, how they did simple things like grow crops and feed themselves and build their cabins. And how do you make sure water is safe to drink? 
and keep yourself warm in the wintertime. Those people just a couple of hundred years ago understood the thing that we're now trying to call a circular economy. They didn't throw anything away until it was utterly unusable. They remade stuff. They redid stuff. They took seed sacks and made clothes out of them. They would take this broken thing and adapt it to this other use. In the Midwestern United States, where you're from, the early European settlers often came from, from Germany or Northern Europe. Many of them were used to a term we haven't heard in a long time called soil husbandry, where you didn't just use up the soil and then move on and find a new farm. You had to rotate crops, plant legumes one season and corn another season, so that some crops would restore components to the soil. I'm belaboring the point, but this concept of a circular economy isn't new. It's just something we forgot about. We don't know how to repair a toaster anymore, and nobody repairs a television. We just buy a new one. I've got a drawer here with a couple of used cell phones in it because nobody fixes it. They're worthless. I don't know why I still have them in my desk drawer. But, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, this, this concept of, of reusing things. You know, the great masters, many of them, the, the great painters of a few hundred years ago, they painted a, a painting and it didn't sell. They'd paint over it and paint something else on even reusing their canvases because they were so valuable. I grew up with a mom as an artist and she did that a lot just because even now for lots of people, the supplies are expensive. And if you did something that you weren't going to look at, instead of sticking it in the closet or throwing it away, you just used it again for something else. Well, yeah. And furniture. You are interviewing me, interestingly enough, from Key West, Florida. There is almost a tradition down here that if you have a piece of furniture that you no longer like, it's broken, mm -hmm. you don't feel like fixing it, sit it out on the street and it'll be gone in about an hour. Literally, we had a piece of furniture that was nearly worn out and we just didn't want it anymore. And my son took it out and set it on the street, turned around to come back in the house and an SUV pulled up and threw it in the back of the SUV. Now, I say that because down here in the Keys, historically, it's difficult to get stuff down here. We're at the end of one long road. And so people have a greater aptitude for reusing things and redoing things. Uh, every Saturday morning in Key West is garage sale day because nobody buys new fishing tackle. They buy used fishing tackle. Hmm. Yeah. And so this is something that I grew up in the rural South where people just didn't have money. I remember to this day borrowing a dime from my grandfather. I was shocked the old man loaned it to me. Uh, <laughs> but the fact is people in those olden times, and those olden times weren't that long ago, really learned to make do and, and redo and reuse things. And that's really what we're talking about here. We don't have a place to put all the used plastic. We're either going to have to figure out a way to reuse that stuff or quit using it because we just don't have a place to throw it anymore. And those of us who in, enjoy deep sea fish, you know, I am a carnivore. I, I, I love me a, a plate of snapper. I had one just the other day, by the way. Really don't want to see our fish wrapped in six-pack wrappers or dying because they've, they've swallowed too many bits of plastic. And that's happening in our oceans today. We want to stop the chemical runoff from our fields. We need to figure out ways to adaptively reuse our agricultural resources that do not require us to constantly chop down trees in the rainforest and allow us to reuse fields without dumping chemicals on them. 
the circular economy is simply the adaptive reuse of those things we have so that we aren't constantly throwing things away. That sounds simpler than we make it out to be. Unfortunately, some of the most complex things are conceptually simple. When I was a boy, John F. Kennedy got on a stump and said, we're going to put a man on the moon in 10 years. Sounds conceptually very simple. (laughs) I'm sure that the people who affected that found it to be somewhat more complex. Now, getting to a, a circular economy demands a certain amount of collaborative effort. We, as a 21st century economy, have gotten used to a disposable economy. We've gotten used to buying plastic jugs of water at the grocery store. I went to the grocery store today, huge rack of shelves devoted to plastic jugs of water. When I was a boy in the rural South, we had a thing called a well. It pumped water out of the ground. (laughs) (laughs) My parents, well, they have, theirs goes in the house. But yeah, my grandparents had a pump well out in the yard. We did indeed have indoor plumbing, but the indoor plumbing came from a pump at the earliest age, I guess six years old, I understood how a pump worked and how it pumped water out of the ground. Now, one might argue that that we need purified water for some purposes. If you have a CPAP machine, you have to have distilled water to run it. There are specific needs for having purified water, but at some point we've, we've all just become extraordinarily accustomed to making our morning lattes out of purified water rather than tap water. So to try to get people into the the scheme of saying, well, okay, I can go back to drinking coffee with tap water. I will be the first one to admit that in some parts of this great world of ours, good water is at a premium. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all know about Flint, Michigan. That's a different problem that has to be solved. And I don't want to harp on the water thing. But I get my iPhone 12 or 13 or 15 just barely broken in, and they, they come up with the next, the next version of it, newer, faster, better. It's got three cameras rather than two because I could barely get along with just one, right? So everybody's now got to have the newest, flashy thing. Admittedly, that keeps a lot of people employed. I mean, a lot of people have jobs because we're a consumption economy, and that's okay. We got to figure out how to make stuff that doesn't have to constantly be thrown away. You know, car parts need to be reused for other stuff. Why can we not do that again? It seems like it is the mental shift from extract, make, dispose to input to make is reuse, make, use, recycle, or refurbish. And I also recognize that it takes energy and effort and money to recycle stuff. It's not like those cardboard boxes that my Amazon stuff comes in, turns into a cardboard box thing over here. They have to be processed and turned into something. And there's a lot of transporting and sifting through and pulling out the things that can be used and not used, and then sending those to the cardboard reuse plant, whatever that looks like. And then they're probably shredded and turned into who knows what. Actually, we're buying shirts. Our company logo shirts are going to have some composition of recycled bottles. I've heard about those. How neat. I mentioned that I'm presently sitting in Key West, Florida, but my home is in the suburbs of Seattle. I live about 20 miles east of Seattle, up in the foothills of the Cascades. It is a gorgeous place. It's one of the really special places in the world. I'm just really lucky to live there. But 
I have the very real pleasure of serving as a director of the Washington Economic Development Finance Authority. One of our jobs is to try to finance job-creating businesses, small businesses, with a bent toward things that may address environmental problems. It's a chunk of what we do. I say that because I really, over the last couple of years, got an education on the problems with the recycling industry. It is a tough industry. There are lots of barriers to getting started in that industry. It's not as simple as it sounds. In many respects, the recycling industry is itself fairly dirty. We recently helped arrange financing for a company that was using wheat straw. Now, you know what a wheat field looks like, but the wheat that we use only comes off of the top of that stalk. And then what you do with the rest of that wheat stalk you know, it can be tilled under into the ground, but only to a certain level. They are finding that they can take that wheat stalk, of which we produce a lot of it in the Western United States, and there are ways to make paper out of the wheat straw. There are other kinds of adaptive reuses for products or for byproducts that would keep them from being just thrown away or burnt up or thrown in landfill or ground up. I found out the other day, this is a little off the subject, but I'm, I'm a big proponent of alternative energy sources. I think we've got to move to some, some more balance in our energy mix. So I like seeing big fields of windmills. It's an interesting way to adaptively co-use real estate. However, windmill blades wear out. And right now we don't have a way to adaptively reuse them. There are apparently only three landfills in America that take these windmill blades, and they're fairly expensive. Right now, they're being buried in the ground. That's not going to go on forever. So there's an industry coming along right now to figure out ways to grind up or cut up or do something with these windmill blades and figure out a way to adaptively reuse them. So, so even something which is, which is a positive move in trying to save the environment has byproducts attached to it, which we have to figure out a way to circuitously use, or we're going to end up with a pile of junk. Electric vehicles. I have one in my future. Batteries. Figuring out what to do with used batteries, because we do reach a point where the batteries and electric vehicles no longer going to take a charge. We're going to have to figure out a way to adaptively reuse these batteries. All of these things require a lot of technology. And I'm going to put in a pitch for my friends in the STEM education biz. I don't want to insult people who are not in STEM, but we quite frankly need more technicians, engineers, technocrats, technologists, whatever you want to call them, to figure out the engineering and technological solutions to these problems. We should be um, encouraging boys and girls to consider that their way of contributing to the environment around them is also coincidental with learning calculus. It sounds like we need to shift our business models then, education and as a company, one of the things that's striking is the externalities. Things like I get done with the blades for the windmill and do I pay for that disposition into the next thing or do I just send them off to whatever version of windmill landfills and society ends up paying that cost? I'm assuming the real estate remediation, the polluters aren't necessarily paying for the remediation. There are litigators out there, attorneys who, who sue them to try to get them to do that. 
it doesn't always work that way. The business model, which has been pervasive in Western civilization for the last 75 plus years, has been one where producers do not bear the full long-term cost and consumers do not pay the full long-term cost of the largesse they consume. In other words, I buy a cell phone and I'm paying for the cell phone. And this is also true with a car or it's true with a, a windmill. We enjoy the, the benefits from that. But then it becomes society as a whole that ends up paying the full life cycle cost associated with that cell phone. If you think of the life cycle of the cell phone, starting from the conceptual idea of the cell phone all the way through to it landing in a landfill somewhere, that consumer is, is enjoying a huge benefit of that, that cell phone in the middle, but not paying the cost of disposal. Let me back up, not paying it directly. Indirectly, we do. Indirectly, if the public has to pay for these things, it becomes a tax on everybody, both the cell phone user and the, the poor schmuck who never had a cell phone. We all end up paying for that. And so the, the business model has to encompass, in a circular economy, the full life cycle of the thing we're producing and making money off of and, and which consumers are enjoying. The businesses push back because they say, well, if we pay the full life cycle cost, that's going to end up raising the costs for consumers. And the answer is the consumers end up paying that full life cycle cost anyway, whether they're paying it to you directly or they're paying it to the government to clean up the mess you created. If you're a capitalist and you believe that capitalism works and you believe that businesses are better at allocating resources than central planners, and by the way, I happen to be one, I happen to be a capitalist. Not a central planner. I'm not a central planner. <laughs> to paraphrase one of Garrett Morris's characters from Saturday Night Live, capitalism has been good to me. That having been said, there are flaws in the capitalist model. That's why we have regulations. That's why we have people who go in and inspect the meat. There are flaws in a purely laissez-faire economy. And that's why it has some regulation. But if businesses are good at allocating resources, which they generally are, then they need to be required to also allocate the resources associated with the full life cycle, the full lifespan of the things that they're making money off of. And that's not a hideous Marxist idea. I mean, that, that just means if you make money off of something, you ought to pay the full cost of this thing you're making money on. It's interesting. I started my career in finance. I worked in the computer industry and we did life cycle costing. Mm -hmm. But when we considered life cycle, disposal was never part of that life cycle. It was cost of ownership until they said goodbye, but we never calculated what that exit meant. Just cost of ownership, not cost of disposal. I'm listening to what you're saying and reacting to what you're saying because it's reminding me of of the failures of, of not doing life cycle costing. You know, there's a story that came out of World War II in Northern Africa, the fall of 1942 when, when America invaded North Africa. And of course there were these American battleships, Navy battleships off the coast firing their weapons. Some of these shells, these 16 inch shells were as big as a Volkswagen. Of course it was the army that had to 
actually put boots on the ground. The army entered the small town and found an unexploded Navy 16-inch shell sitting in the middle of the piazza of the small town in northern Africa. So the army colonel wanted the Navy to do something about this <laughs> big Volkswagen-sized shell that's in his way. And he, he contacted the Navy, and the next day, here comes a Jeep riding up into the piazza with a young Navy lieutenant in the Jeep. And the Navy lieutenant gets out and looks at it, salutes the Army colonel and says, Colonel, let me explain to you the Navy's philosophy about these shells. That shell belonged to the Navy until the moment it left our gun. Then it became yours. <laughs> and so there is a certain amount of failure of life cycle costing that permeates the attitudes of businesses. This automobile is ours until the moment you drive it off our lot, in which case it becomes yours. You know, we, we bear no responsibility anymore for the economy that has to pick up the pieces associated with recycling that automobile. And if for some reason or another, what we're doing creates some pollution, creates some environmental problems, which society in general have to pay for, those are not our direct responsibility because that car was ours till the moment you drove it off our lot. The question that's really going through my mind is, so I run a company and I'm profitable, that back to your capitalism has been good for me. Why do I want that to change? I get that taxpayers are paying for it. I'm a taxpayer. I pay my share of getting stuff cleaned up. Why, even if I'm a conscientious business owner, why do I want it to change? And how do I do something about that? If I take on the life cycle cost, but my competitors don't, I go out of business. So now that we've established that circular matters, that transition seems incredibly complicated. Back to your point of planet Earth, moon, man, there. Got it. First, I, I alluded to the fact that there are some loopholes in capitalism, and that's why we have modest amounts of regulation. Admittedly, there's a balancing act associated with regulation. I like a regulation that tells me that people should drive less than 65 or 70 miles an hour on an interstate highway. I probably would not be tolerant if that was lowered to 30 or 35. And so a certain degree of regulation is in everybody's best interest. Now, someone might argue that if we lowered the speed limit on interstate highways to 35, we'd cut the highway accident rate by a certain fraction. And they're probably right. Except people like me would run over the 35 mile an hour drivers. So we have a different issue. There would be those challenges. We would increase to a great extent the scofflaw problem. But... Even if, if everybody did obey, I think there would be widespread grumbling that this was a bridge too far, that the government had simply gone too far. So a certain amount of regulation is needed. Now, with respect to meat inspection that I talked about a few minutes ago, everybody who's in the meat packing business gets subject to the same meat inspection regulations. One might argue that we need more of it, but everybody gets the same amount, and therefore everybody is is adhering to essentially the same level of regulation. And if somebody tries to disobey it, well, then they get their hand slapped. One might argue that they ought to get it slapped harder. But there you have it. At least 
there is an attempt to build a level playing field. Number one, there ought to be a certain amount of regulation in that area. The private sector would argue that if this is really meaningful to the public writ large, then leave it up to the general public and they'll shop with the well-behaved providers and not shop with the not so well-behaved providers. Well, if that was true, we wouldn't need meat inspection, would we? People would simply eventually gravitate to the uh, companies that they knew were selling clean meat and wouldn't buy from the companies that got a reputation of having dirty meat. And the fact of the matter is a certain amount of regulation is necessary because it's written right there in, you know, in the founding documents of the country to promote the general welfare. There's a certain amount of promoting the general welfare that the government's supposed to do. Admittedly, less is often more, but a certain amount of leveling the playing field in that regard is good for business because it requires every business to sing in harmony with every other business. And, and provides at least a nominal hand slap to the ones who become scofflaws. Your sense is we're not going to get there unless it comes from the government. I'm a great proponent of public-private partnership. I think we have to move in that direction. And I think some of the more sensible people in business are recognizing that in the long run, if we want to keep selling vehicles to people, if Ford wants to keep manufacturing vehicles, and I say Ford because I own an F-150, I love it. Fantastic pickup truck, by the way. <laughs> but they've got to recognize that they've got to build them cleaner and better and maybe consider an electric Ford F-150. Yeah, they're trying to produce one. And from what I understand, early reports, it, it's a magnificent vehicle. If Ford's in it for the long haul, they have a vested interest in figuring out not just what a 21st century car company looks like, but will we have car companies in the 22nd century? And if so, what will they look like? I'm sure 100 years ago, Henry Ford, you know, sitting there in, in, in the 1920s, wasn't necessarily thinking about the 2020s, but Ford was certainly building a car company that they felt like was going to last for generations, which was still going to be around for decades. And so here we are over 100 years later, and people are still buying Fords. I know I am. And by the way, when I get rid of my Ford F-150, I will probably buy another Ford F-150. Great pickup truck. No, I'm not a paid spokesman for Ford. And Dodge Ram and Chevy Silverado are also great trucks. Don't get me wrong. But I, I say that because I think that the manufacturers, the sellers, the people who are conduits for sales, like Walmart, they're kind of in the conduit business. Walmart doesn't sell you a tube of toothpaste. Procter Gamble sells you a tube of toothpaste. Walmart just provides a place where you can go buy a tube of Crest toothpaste. But they have a vested interest in trying to figure out if Walmart wants to be around 100 years from now, and I think they kind of do, then, then how do we make sure that we're selling toothpaste 
in tubes that aren't going to fill up the landfills. Because ultimately, if we're bad actors, there's not going to be a, a stage on which we can act anymore. I believe that a lot of businesses understand that. And the more forward-thinking businesses are trying to partner with government, are trying to find these public-private partnerships that will help create a template for a circular economy that allows us to grow crops that will feed everybody without polluting the water that runs off of those fields, to build automobiles or vehicles or whatever the 21st century flying car ends up being. I watch the Jetsons. Where's my flying car? <laughs> you know, at, at the end of the day, if that's going to become a 22nd century company, and they need to th think in those long-term horizons. They need to ask themselves, what technology are we putting in place today such that we will have a company 50 or 100 years from now and a, and a market to sell it to? Batteries. People keep screaming about where we're going to find the rare earths to make enough batteries. I'm asking where are we going to find the plain old earth to bury all these batteries? And we need to figure out a way to to make that circular, to recycle these things or to adaptively reuse them so that the solution to the 19th century problem or the 20th century problem doesn't become a 21st or 22nd century problem. I'm looking at a paper here that I'm using as a resource for another project, and it talks about closing the loop. So I've made and used my product. What's the way we close the loop? And it talks about things like product reuse, part reuse, recycling, upcycling, biodegradable, waste as input, and then things like building in increased longevity, building in repairability, dematerialization, pulling out some of the materials, using eco-materials, and then on the monetizing, kind of the, not the software as a service, but product as a service, subscription services, fractional ownership, revenue sharing, crowdfunding, and take back. So it seems like there are emerging business models that depending on which sector you're in, there are companies exploring each of these to help us build the circularity. In America, in most cities in the United States, I won't say everywhere in America, but in most cities in the United States, it would be illegal for me to go into the trash dumpster behind a grocery store and take out a package of donuts that they'd thrown away because it was one day past the expiration date. In France, conversely, it would be illegal for that grocery store to throw away that box of donuts. At some point, we it's almost like we create waste for the sake of creating waste. And in the Kilpatrick household, we try to be pretty religious about recycling stuff. But it's not just a matter of, of the recycling process. At the product acquisition phase, we have to ask ourselves, is this a product that's going to generate more waste than it's worth. Or if I've got a choice between two products, is there a way to make a choice based on, on how much waste? 
Don't go to a grocery store and buy a plastic bag that they then put in a plastic bag and hand you. I went to a grocery store the other day and bought a package of plastic bags and the package of plastic bags was in a plastic bag. And then the cashier put that in a plastic bag to hand to me. That seemed a little redundant to me. Uh, so I, I think at the end of the day, we have to consider how we are consuming things, what we are consuming. Now, I would posit to you that I'm not telling people to quit becoming consumers. The consumption, the thing that you buy creates a job for somebody else. I mean, we are a society that's associated with creating goods and services, which are then acquired by other people. By the way, that's that's not new. The first time a tribal society or a, a cave person society found out that Ugg over there was really lousy at hunting woolly mammoths, but was really good at making spear tips. The rest of the hunters said, let's let Ugg stay behind and make spear tips and we'll go hunt the woolly mammoth. That's when a trade economy evolved right there. And, and being a, a former finance professor, I'm sure that a week later, somebody opened a bank. At the end of the day, I'm not telling you to not be a consumer. I'm telling you to be a little bit more sensible consumer. Try to think through your consumption a little bit. Don't buy a, a bag full of plastic bags stored in a plastic bag and then let the cashier hand you another plastic bag. I mean, just think about these things. Think about that, that manner of consumption. And think about now, I will tell you that a lot of the businesses in America are starting to think about that. A lot of fast food joints now package their fast foods in biodegradable containers rather than plastic. Now, these are steps in the right direction. One might consider them baby steps, but just like baby steps, you've got to ooh and ah the toddler who takes his or her first steps. You know, oh, that's. That's great. You know, that's worth a pat on the back, kid. Come on now. Now, tomorrow we're going to run a marathon. No, I, I think we have to work our way up to that. But at least let's foster steps in the right direction and let's make businesses part of the solution, find ways to encourage them to become part of the solution, as opposed to always blaming them for being part of the problem. And how do we encourage them? Is it me as the consumer? And I'm one of those people who carries my water bottle with me. I often carry a grocery bag with me, the fabric bags. I ask people where it's possible to put things in reusable, biodegradable containers. Some places don't have them. We haven't stopped going to those restaurants, by the way. So I haven't made those choices. If I'm a business I'm still thinking about for our business leaders, how does this become a differentiator for my services rather than someone like me saying, yeah, but I'm not going to change my buying choices because I still like that Indian food and my favorite Indian restaurant uses styrofoam containers. Yeah, my favorite Indian restaurant uses plastic forks. It upsets the heck out of me. <laughs> Now you've got me thinking of chicken tiki masala. I'm sorry. <laughs> I drifted off there a little bit. Um, the baby steps have to be encouraged. And I would say rightfully so. Call businesses on the carpet when they do things we don't like. 
they come before the Senate and the House and testify to committees of Congress and, and they get reamed for their bad behavior. But there are lots of collaborative efforts behind the scenes. About 25 years ago, maybe 30, gosh, time flies when you're having fun. I was involved during the Clinton administration on the periphery of negotiating a six-sided technology transfer treaty among uh, Australia, Japan, the United States, European Union, European Free Trade Association, and um, somebody else. (laughs) I can't remember who else. Canada, I think. Anyway, the whole idea was that there there was a time when Japan wanted to pay American universities to develop certain technologies. And as it turns out, it's it was illegal at the time for that to happen. And so businesses wanted this to happen because they wanted, within a, a certain regulated environment, a free exchange of technology or raw basic university level, mm. basic theoretical technology across the boundaries of countries which were natural allies and trading partners with one another. And we have to figure out ways to protect trademarks and protect intellectual property, but at the same time, be able to do basic research in a shared way. And so I I had the real pleasure of of being engaged with that. And there were a lot of just public-private interaction to get something good done. And it took a couple of years to get this treaty negotiated, and, and we finally got it negotiated. A lot of that happens behind the scenes. That doesn't make the news because nobody's having his head put on a silver platter and paraded around the House of Representatives when that happens. Companies and government agencies get together and and have a, a conversation that may or may not end up with something getting stuck in a bill. And And by the way, it's not all about tax breaks and tax benefits. Sure, the lobbyists are all about tax breaks and tax benefits. Everybody loves them. Nobody gets as much as they want. And some people think that other people get too many of them. I'm not going to argue with that. But at the end of the day, there's a role for the government. There's a role for basic research institutions like universities and federal labs there's a role for business to play. And if they're, they're not encouraged to come together and have these conversations, and the government is the right organization to facilitate that, by the way, if they are not brought together and those conversations are not facilitated, then we won't go very far with this. I, th- I think one of the things government can do is find ways to facilitate this. In the early days of supercomputers, I know I'm monologuing right now, and I apologize for that. (laughs) The um, National Transportation Safety Board had some supercomputers in D.C. where they were, and this is pretty early in in the days of supercomputers, where they were running crash tests in a supercomputer environment. And this was way in advance of what car makers could do themselves. Now, car makers... If they had access to this, if they officially had access to this information, they were opening themselves up for lawsuits because the moment a lawyer knows that a car company knows that the passenger side door of a pickup truck will fly open if it does a right side front bumper collision, 
which they found. It was an anomaly that they found in this supercomputer write-up. In the moment the car company knows that and they don't do a recall, then they're opening themselves up for hundreds of millions of dollars in lawsuits. So here's this technology that the car companies need to know. And the car companies want to know it, but they can't admit that they want to know it. And they can't admit that it exists. What did they do? The National Transportation Safety Board just left their computers running at night and you could get access to them. Any researcher that you wanted that wanted this information, whether that researcher was at a university or maybe at a car company, could go in and borrow that information in the middle of the night and populate their own models. So this was this was information that needed to be shared. The legal mechanism for sharing it, that information was difficult and problematic. But the government figured out a way to facilitate getting this important information to car companies so that they could make cars safer and not at the same time expose them to lawsuits. That was decades ago, so I hope I'm knocking on wood that all of the statutes limitation have passed in that <laughs> now. But the point of it is, I think you need government facilitation of these conversations. Oh, and it's got to cross borders. Did I mention that? We can't keep it all here in the United States. We got to talk to our allies. And sometimes we have to talk to people who are not allies of ours. We got to talk to people we don't like. We've been having more conversations recently with global multilateral organizations and people who are working globally. And and most of us are touched by global operations, but it seems more common now that even in an enterprise that appears to be domestic, we're seeing with the supply chain shortages, we're all kind of connected to China or somebody who has stuff on ships that are stuck in the port of Los Angeles or someplace. So the global piece is unmistakable at this moment. I was involved in the establishment and the the development of the um, BMW plant in uh, Greer, South Carolina, which the supply chain for that plant actually began in Steyr, Austria. That is to say that the assembly line itself began in Steyr, Austria. They would build the drivetrains in Steyr, fly them over to Greer, Hmm. into the airport, the plant backed up to the Greenville-Spartanburg South Carolina airport. They would forklift these things out of the 767 and literally forklift them onto the assembly line with a perfect just-in-time assembly model. Now, one might say, well, isn't flying those things over from Steyr, Austria, a polluting act? And the answer is, well, if the Beamer is going to be sold here in the United States, you're eventually going to have to get it here. And the the least cost way of doing it was to fly the drivetrain over, buy all the body parts here, and then put the whole thing together here. That that was at least economically the least expensive way to end up with a BMW in a consumer's hands here in the United States. I think that's a beautiful example. And we're going to wrap up each of us as consumers need to think about circularity and as business leaders, we need to think about if I run an organization, the impact I'm making on the environment, landfills, air, water, one, there's a limited amount that we share across the planet. And it is becoming incumbent upon each of us to consider it and take appropriate action in the context of what also keeps our business sustainable and successful. I would say that there is a financially 
economically practical reason for businesses to take this very, very seriously. And that's the longevity of their businesses. It's not just a PR thing. It's not just to keep consumers or a certain segment of the consuming public happy with you. It's a matter of the longevity of your business. Technology does not turn on a dime. It takes a while to make the investments and put in place the decisions to facilitate these changes. Businesses that want to survive into the next decade and the coming decades, that want a market for their products, should be thinking about this. The role of government is to facilitate this technology development, and the role of consumers is to make more careful choices. Don't quit consuming, but be qualified in your consumption and be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. John, thank you. I deeply appreciate you taking time and sharing your insight with our listeners and with me. This has been great. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. This hour passed way too quickly. And uh, you were very kind to have me. Thank you very much. For our listeners who are interested in learning more from you, do you have contact information? Easiest way to reach me is John, J-O-H-N, at Greenfield Advisors, G-R-E-E-N-F-I-E-L-D, A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S, greenfieldadvisors.com, John at greenfieldadvisors.com. I have a an occasional blog, johnakilpatrick.com, which I try to keep up, and it also has link information to me there. So John at Greenfield Advisors, I love to hear from people except for the spam out there. (laughs) Actual real people. Thank you. Take care.